Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 720 with Dr. David Rock. If you've heard about this great resignation and are thinking, oh, should I resign? What's this all about? Why are people leaving? What's going on? Dr. David Rock has got the goods for you, sharing some strategies to help you come out of the resignation, feeling all the more satisfied and delighted. And if you're on the employer side, how to not lose your people. So you'll learn one, why so many folks are quitting right now. Two, the small shifts that drastically improve your satisfaction and productivity. And three, the telltale signs that it's time to quit your job. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, please drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP720. And here is Dr. David Rock's story. He coined the term neuroleadership, and he's the co-founder and CEO of the Neuroleadership Institute. The Institute is a 23-year-old cognitive science consultancy that has advised over half of the Fortune 100. They got operations in 24 countries, and the Institute brings neuroscientists and leadership experts together to make organizations better for humans through science. Dr. Rock has authored four successful books, including Your Brain at Work, a business bestseller, and has written for and been quoted in hundreds of articles about leadership, organizational effectiveness, and the brain, which can be found in places like the Harvard Business Review, the New York Times, and more. Dr. Rock is originally Australian, though based in the U.S. since 2010. He holds a professional doctorate in the neuroscience of leadership from Middlesex University in the U.K. Big thanks to David for sharing his wisdom with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Now, here's David. David, thanks for joining us here on How to Be Awesome at Your Job. It's a pleasure. Good to be with you. Yeah, well, I'm excited to, to be with you, and I'm hoping you can give some insight beyond the headlines. We're, we're hearing this term great resignation a lot. First, can you define it for us and tell us, is this really a big deal or is this overhyped? I mean, it's a bit of both. Statistically, when you really look at the data, and I, I'm a scientist, I like data, it's definitely bigger than other times, but it's also part of an ongoing trend where we've seen increasing number of people uh, changing jobs every year. So it's definitely a bump, but it's really hard to say whether it's a function of no one quit last year because we were so uncertain. And then hmm. kind of suddenly there was this big bump now making up for that. It, it statistically, it looks a little bit more than just that big bump, but it feels bigger. And certainly it, it is bigger and you may notice it around you in certain industries, but it's not, it's not kind of the enormous thing necessarily from a statistic point of view. Okay. Well, and so then, but is there something noteworthy and, and bigger there that, that's worth exploring and, and, and digging into? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's a really very specific experience that millions, if not billions of people have had. It's very unusual. And the Great Depression 100 years ago is probably the only thing at all in parallel that you know, really left a mark on people. People who, who grew up through the Great Depression had certain habits, you know, the, the whole rest of their life till, till the end of their life. And I think in a similar way, the folks who've lived through this pandemic are going to be affected by it for a long, long time. And there's a number of things that happened. I mean, huge parts of the economy are built on devices to distract us from ourselves, whether it's movies, books, television, apps, everything else. And uh, for a lot of people, Netflix kind of ran out and there was nothing <laughs> left to distract them. With. I finished it. <laughs> they finished it, right? And sort of they were left having all this time with themselves. And sometimes what they saw, they didn't really like. So there's a percentage of the population who's interested in self-reflection and thinking about life, but there's a lot of people who go through life, probably the majority, 
without much time really thinking about themselves. You know, we don't have 90% of people in therapy. And so a lot of people were kind of forced to, to take a good, honest look at their life because there was, wasn't much else to focus on. And they saw that they didn't really love their job, that maybe didn't love their partner, maybe didn't love where they live. And those three things changed a lot when the pandemic finished. And the job is the easier one to change than a house or a partner. All right. Um, in fact, you're, you're probably more likely to trade up in the job, uh, but the other two depends. So a lot of people coming out of this said, I want to make big changes. And also they, they, there was this really big lack of control that we all have experienced and are still experiencing this really big lack of control. It's a thing called autonomy. And so by changing jobs in particular, you're, you're reasserting your feeling of control in your life in a way that's probably the least disruptive as well. So I think that's another reason in summary, people kind of had time to think and, and got to see a lot of their life wasn't great. And then they found a way to regain control, which is uh, the easiest way is, is changing jobs. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so autonomy, status, control, things that folks folks want and are, are maybe not not getting as much as they'd like in their jobs. And so a switch is one way to accomplish that. Do you have any interesting research insights on can we get more of that while staying right where we are? Yeah, absolutely. So autonomy is this really interesting construct in the brain. It's a, it's a feeling of being in control or of having choices. The two are, are quite similar. You know, when you press a button to cross the street, you expect it to change in a certain amount of time. And if nothing happens after, you know, a few minutes, you you get frustrated. It's, you know, you thought you had control over crossing the road and you discover it's broken and now you feel better, you regain control and you, you know, you cross another way. But our feeling of kind of being in control is, a, is something that goes up and down through the day, but generally within a certain limit. And the pandemic really, uh, you know, dropped that sense. We felt completely out of control. We just didn't know what to do in, in a huge way. And it's such an interesting phenomenon of control. Um, in animal studies, it's the difference between life and death. So in animal studies, it, essentially that you can give animals a certain stressor and some will have this perception of being in control of it and some it'll feel out of control. And it literally is the difference between life and death. There's studies with humans in retirement homes, in aged homes where they give a control group, no change. And another group, they give them three choices. Like this was done in about the seventies, but they give them three choices of like a plant or an art or where to put the bed. And they actually halved the death rate mm. for people who were given control. And then a third study that always blows my, my head off people given the control over how they laid out their cubicle. So same job, same company, same cubicle, still had the same computer, but they were allowed to bring in like personal things, their cubicle versus not. And the people allowed to bring in personal things who felt in control of their cubicle, 25% more productive. It's like a day a week more productive. It's crazy. Wow. So it has this, autonomy has this outsize effect on many, many functions in the brain. And essentially it puts us in more of an approach state or towards state when we have a sense of control. And when we reduce our sense of control, it activates more of a threat state or avoidance state. And generally, we're far more creative in an approach state. We literally have greater cognitive resources for you know, holding big ideas in mind. We collaborate better. I mean, just about everything is better in more of an approach state. What happens when we feel like we're in control? A little bit of an avoidance or threat state is okay for focusing for short bursts, but you won't be very creative, but you'll be able to execute well. So there's a whole lot of science to this, but essentially the pandemic kind of reduced our feeling of control, but a lot of clever people worked out hacks to that and said, actually, you know what? I can control my diet now better than any other time in my life. And 
they started to really monitor their diet and track it, do experiments. And, and people said, you know what? I can control my sleep properly for the first time ever. I can even control the people I meet. And the introvert germaphobes had a field day. But we could suddenly control a lot more things because we were in our home environment. And so while you could sort of focus on being out of control, there were other ways that you could focus on. Actually, your control had increased in a local way. And we even had more control over when we worked and versus when we had breaks and all of this stuff. And that was one of the silver linings of, of the pandemic is that we had this increased sense of control of our kind of workflow because our manager wasn't, you know, standing over us. Mm-hmm. So it gives you a clue to sort of what we can do. But the science of this is really fascinating. Indeed. And what a powerful impact there by having even minor amounts of control. You're allowed to decorate your cubicle as you as you see fit. And so, boy, that just gets me thinking, there's probably so much autonomy that we we guess we just sort of leave on the table, if you will. It's like, we don't even consider that we have that control in order to exercise and enjoy the benefits of controlling our work break timing or our our food choices or our sleep. Any any other categories you think are just overlooked? Like, hey, this is in your control, seize it and, and reap the benefits. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, if you're at home a lot of the time, you're in control over who you socialize with. And now you don't have to socialize with people who are in a 20-mile radius. You can socialize with people anywhere in the world. And I've been part of a, a poker school or poker club for over a decade. And most of my buddies I played with are in Australia, where I'm originally from. And I kind of miss them. And you know what I found is that there was a great app where we could literally play poker on, online and see each other and hear each other perfectly. It was just like being there. And we started playing monthly and enjoyed it so much, we started playing weekly. And now I'm getting together with some of my favorite humans literally every week for a couple of hours and just hanging out. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful thing. So you, you gain this control over who you interact with and whether it's family or friends or people you really want to learn from. That's another upside to this time. And I think the People's willingness to try things on platforms is always going to be with us. Right. We've all learned that there are things we can do on platforms like Zoom that you know we never imagined were possible, and actually they can work. And so I think that's going to stay with us for some time. Lovely. Okay. Well, so then what are some other ways you, you recommend folks can upgrade their, their satisfaction with, with where they are? They can look for opportunities to exercise their autonomy. What else? Another thing that you want to play with is, is your sense of certainty. So we have this drive for a feeling of control that's always relative. So you have a little more, a little less than where you were. And, but we also have this drive for a sense of certainty and they're similar, but quite different things. And a sense of certainty is literally how much you feel you're able to predict what's about to happen. And let me give an example. You know, in normal times you're at work, you're at the office and you live a little bit far away and, you, you know, your partner borrows your car. And during the day they say, hey, I think I'm going to be back in time, but I'm not sure. And if not, you'll need to get public transport. You know, that's like an extra hour and a hassle. The whole afternoon, your brain's going to go back and forward, back and forward between. Do I have to leave at five? Do I need to leave at four? Am I going to have to deal with that? And while that ambiguity is there, a big piece of your brain is trying to solve for two different realities. And it's trying to do all the sort of what if questions about if you have to take the subway and the, and the bus or if you're going to have the car. And it's debilitating. You're actually using some of your limited working memory. So that's a small bit of uncertainty, right? Where you've just got, do I take transport or am I having a car? And so your brain is constantly mapping out into the future, trying to kind of plan ahead unconsciously. 
And when, when the world was really certain, as it sort of was before the pandemic, things were kind of in a flow and you knew how you were getting home and what you were doing next week and where you were going for vacation and when you would next see your parents and all of these kinds of things. And then certainty plummeted during the pandemic. And one of the interesting phenomena was our temporal focus or, or how far out we can think really shrank, right? Normally we think like, you know, it's not uncommon to think a year out and plan a vacation in a year, right? Or some education in a year or two years you're working towards or be saving for something a few years out. You know, we went from a year to not a quarter or even a month and not even a week. Many of us during the pandemic could barely think a few days ahead. We were very much in the now. And it was because of the amount of uncertainty, there were so many variables that were uncertain that it, was, it just hurt to think even a week out at some points. There was just so much that was changing all the time. And so we, we, we became a much more focused in the moment. And part of it is that uncertainty, like a lack of control, increases the threat response in the brain, which literally reduces resources for prefrontal or working memory. And so you had this issue where lack of control actually made it harder just to hold things in mind. And so you just focused on the now. And then there was this whole complexity of just trying to calculate further out and how exhausting that was. We just gave up. And so, so that issue happened. And interestingly, again, this is one of those situations where you can kind of hack your perception of control, just like you can autonomy. And the interesting thing about the brain is things that are local are valued more highly than things that are further away. Mm-hmm. So feeling certain about your office where you spend a lot of time will actually give you a whole lot of benefits because it's right in front of you all the time. And so, so you can hack your brain's need for certainty by, and a lot of people did this, like organizing your office like crazy, organizing, you know, your bookshelf, organizing your filing, resetting up your systems, getting your computer better than ever, getting the stand you've always wanted and the the camera at eyesight and just getting super organized. So literally you didn't have to use working memory for lots of little things anymore. Steve Jobs was famous for this, you know, always wearing the same thing. So we didn't have to make decisions in the morning and could focus on other things. And it's a bit like that. You just create this huge amount of certainty and then your brain has to make fewer decisions and it's less taxed overall. So, so there's a local effect with things that are physically close to you and also things that are close in time. And uh, that's one of the ways of hacking this. So, you, you know, you end up organizing your calendar, your, your, your schedule, you end up just kind of getting really disciplined and structured. And that hacks your sense of certainty, even if the outside world is completely crazy. And so there's all these kinds of hacks like this, particularly around autonomy and certainty you can do, even when the world's really crazy, to locally feel a lot better and be able to think well. That really resonates. And and what's coming to mind for me is, I've got a buddy, Ronnie, and he said to me, boy, decades ago, he said, laundry is power. (laughs) I was like, what? are you even saying? (laughs) And then sure enough, this is before I was doing my laundry regularly, right? We were like teenagers. (laughs) And then, and then when I got in the groove and I I understood, it's like, ah, yes. When you have a drawer of perfectly like folded and organized and clean and ready to go laundry, that is power because whatever tiny bit of your Ram was spent wondering, do I have clean underwear or shirt or dress socks or like fill whatever item you might need or want. It's like, the answer is yes. Why I'm certain my clothing is handled. Likewise, I've got a bunch of high protein snacks on that shelf. Right. (laughs) That feels great in terms of like, I don't need to worry. Right. Like if if the schedule gets all choppy or weird, I'm not going to go hungry. There's a reassurance there that feels good. So 
organizing in terms of like, I, I know I've got my pens or my, my stand or, or whatever, my apps. Lay it on us. What, what are some other ways we can remove uncertainty from our lives and reap those psychological benefits? I have to tell you a funny relevant story before we go into some other ones is I just had a birthday recently and my partner said, you know, what do you really want? And I said, I want to never think about socks again. Like I worked out every single day. I'm just spending like five minutes pointlessly searching for socks and pairing them all this stuff. I said, I want, I want you to like really care about the perfect socks and like go test them, find out, see if you can work out. I like, you know, X, Y, Z. And then that's the thing I most want for my birthday. And they did it. They went out and she like worked out the exact one and like threw out all my other socks and gave me like just dozens and dozens and dozens of exact same socks. So I just never have to think about matching socks ever again. And it was, it's kind of something I've always wanted and never, I always felt too indulgent, but it's like, you know, that stuff adds up because it's attention you can't put elsewhere and all those little places. Yeah. David, I love that so much. And the problem with socks is that they have all these different styles. Like if you get a pack right. of five, there might be five different designs. Like that doesn't help me because if I lose one, then I've, the pair ends, whereas I've got redundancies that could, you know, replace each other. And so it's harder to match and pair. So I've actually had the same fantasy, but I too have not taken the time to realize it. Awesome. All right. So socks, that's one <laughs> thing you can not think about ever again. Cool. Well, it's a good metaphor. And then if you take that and say, look, what else do you regularly, like at least once a week, find you waste attention on? Because attention is actually a limited resource. If you're having to, you know, pair socks, that's attention you can't put onto something else. So, you know, what else do you regularly, like at least weekly, maybe daily, put attention onto that you really don't need to, you really shouldn't have to? And how can you replace those things so that you really don't have to actually give that any focus anymore? It's, you'll start to see a lot of things where you could create a lot more certainty in these areas. And whether it's bulk buying food so that you know you've always got three months worth of things that you know you never have to worry, you know, shop four times a year, or it could be around planning you know, your exercise uh, routine, you know, a month out at a time or planning your diet a whole way out. So it's, there's different ways to think about it. It's kind of whatever you're interested in, but essentially the fewer decisions you have to make that are kind of pointless, the better off you'll be. That's the tip overall. Right. And so it's not so much, oh, I'm at the gym. What am I going to do here now? But rather I've taken some time. I've done some research in advance based on my goals and the equipment that's available and the time I have. This is what I'm doing. And so you've made one decision to rule dozens or hundreds of subsequent decisions. Right. One of the things I did is I, I realized I was terrible at going to the gym and uh, it just was a time suck to like get there and do, deal with things and get it back. And I didn't like the environment of the gym and, and I needed to work out fairly regularly. I felt there were benefits. The research was really saying there are benefits. And as I looked into the research, it, it became clear that actually a, a small amount of exercise, if you do it every day, is fantastic. And by small amount, I mean like five minutes, even, you know, five to 10 minutes. And I realized like I'm overcomplicating this thing. What if I could do something that I could do absolutely anywhere? doesn't matter what hotel I'm in, what part of the world I'm in, what mental state I'm in. I can just anywhere do some exercises and do them absolutely daily. When I simplified it down to that, I had all this certainty and now I could just weave in exercise into, you know, into part of my day. And so push-ups and sit-ups go a long way, plus some stretching you do that regularly, daily, you've got an amazing set of health benefits and strength and confidence. And you add some cardio from most days from a walking meeting so that you're getting that cardio in as well while you're in a, in a meeting. 
and you've got a fantastic exercise routine without ever going to the gym. So again, you're, you're kind of creating, I guess it's not just certainty. You're also just creating more ease with your attention and with having to achieve your goals. Mm-hmm. Right. You're not worried like, Oh, when and where and how am I going to get this workout? in? it's like, Oh, it's just, it's five minutes. It's, it can be anywhere. And for the time being, I've chosen to schedule it at this time recurring. And then now there it is. Cool. All right. Well, so then let's talk about if we do want to make a change in the job, how do we know it's time? And how do you go about thinking through and deciding that? And companies are really good at, at trying to keep people. And I think that it's really good. And I speak as an employer as well, I guess, in this, but it's really good to explore the options because Sometimes we just think that the job we're in is the only opportunity, but a lot of companies are good at being flexible. And you might find there's a completely different career path in the same company. I remember we did a lot of work with Intel for quite some years, the chip maker. And I remember a dinner a few years ago with uh, maybe a dozen of the Intel executives and they were introducing themselves. And uh, I said, you know, how long you've been here and what do you do? And to a person, everyone had been there 20 plus years. And they weren't necessarily that senior. They were, you know, mid-career. And I was like, how does the company keep you so long? And everyone just laughed and said, well, every two or three years, I get a knock on my door and someone offers me a ridiculously big job that I could never imagine I would ever be chosen for and throws me in the deep end in this incredibly challenging opportunity that I get to really sink my teeth into. And they just keep doing that every few years. I've never gone more than five years without that happening. Um, Everyone to a person agreed. So, you know, Intel in the background had worked that out and kept really, really good people by stretching them a lot. And so, you know, a lot of clever organizations want to give you different kinds of roles. And And I think the first step is to explore, is it the company or is it the role? If you're an extrovert and you're stuck in accounting, filling in forms, you may find that joining the sales team might make you intrinsically happier. That's an obvious one. But so I think, you know, the first thing is, is it, is it the company or is it the role or is it, is it the team? Maybe you're in a team where the chemistry isn't right. And I've got a team of 200 plus people and magic happens sometimes when you move someone to a different team. Someone can be an underperformer and not happy. You put them in a whole different team and they do incredible work. So there's a, there's a definite chemistry thing. So I think it, you know, it depends. Is it the company? Is it the team? Is it the work? It's good to think about those things and explore ideas. I mean, if it's all three, <laughs> you might want to consider your options. And sometimes people just want to really shake things up. You know, they want to really, really shake up their kind of whole world and challenge themselves to learn new things, especially if they're maybe mid-career. They've done, you know, a few years, kind of in the first five to 10 years of working that really learned a lot of skills in one environment. They're like, I want to challenge myself and learn something completely different. You know, i we're talking to a colleague who's been in, in pharma for a long, long time. And she's like, you know what? I want to go and be in media now. Pharma's been great, but I want an entirely different ecosystem. I want to learn entirely different things about the world. And that's something I'm passionate about. So that's a person that probably will leave because they it's the entire industry they want to shift. So getting a new job in there, you know, won't be won't be helpful. So I think you gotta you gotta think about the industry, the company, the team, and the job itself. You know, what really is it? And if it is time to to leave, it's always really great. Uh, And I guess I say this as an employee, but it's always really great to let people know really early and minimize the surprise element. So your colleagues, not just your managers, but your colleagues also, you know, have time to set things up so they're not drowning. I I know in many organizations right at the moment, everyone's struggling for talent. I don't know how the math of that works. I think just a lot of people are not working, but it's not just restaurants and bars. Like everyone everywhere is really short-staffed somehow. 
just about every industry I talk to, people are saying we just don't have enough people for the work. So I'm a fan of giving folks lots of warnings so you're not throwing anyone in the deep end. Mm-hmm. All right. So we've talked about some tiny interventions in terms of just like your own mindset and what's in your sphere of control, what you can do there. We talked about some some big changes in terms of I'm out of here. Uh, so maybe about some in-between size changes. Do you have any pro tips on, on how we go about communicating with managers, leaders, others in, in terms of, hey, you know what? This, this job isn't working for me. Or, hey, I'd really appreciate it if we could make this shift or accommodation any magical scripts or words or phrases or approaches that, that really work well here? Yeah. I mean, there's no magic in that stuff. It's creates a lot of anxiety for people. So I think being clear is really helpful. Being really clear about whether you've made a decision or not, whether you're talking to other organizations already or not, you know, where you are in your process. If you're really early in your thinking, let people know you're early in your thinking and you're not planning to do anything for a few months. If you've kind of already decided to leave and you've already done interviews, you've got to kind of be upfront about that. So I, I think there's a lack of transparency in both directions, employer and employee in these things. And, and I think it, it just everyone wins when there's more transparency around this stuff. So I think just be really clear about where you are in your process. And it's just really nice to give people a little bit of time to find that that replacement as well, especially in this environment. Mm-hmm. All right. Flipping the perspective a little bit. When you are the employer and you are looking to retain the talent, you mentioned some of the best practices of Intel. What are some of the other things that you find are, are really great things to do to help get people to stick around? I mean, one of the biggest motivators is feeling you make making progress. There's a whole book on that called The Progress Principle by Teresa Amiabla. But it's, it's this feeling like you're actually able to, to really do your best work, not just make progress, but you're, you're able to really be proud of the work that you do and know it really is your best work. There's sort of nothing worse than getting home and saying, I tried my best, but really there are all these roadblocks in the way and I did half the job I could have done. If only my colleagues had my back or if only I had this technology or, you know, I just didn't get to uh, look as good or hit it out of the park. It's, it's frustrating. So, so I think helping people do their best work is really important. And the challenge with that is it's very individual. So managers have to learn to ask questions about it, right? So some really interesting data out recently, like there's a whole conundrum about where do you let people work now that the offices are opening up a bit. But it turns out there's no one answer to that. About a third of people are saying their productive place is at home full-time. It's not just that they want to goof off. It's actually where they work hardest and get the most done. Now, some of them might also appreciate having more time with their kids and less pointless time driving and all sorts of other things. But literally a third of people say they're more productive working at home than anything else. About a third of people say they're actually more productive working in the office. And that's where they get the most done, right? Now they might be extroverts or they might not have conditions at home that are good, or they just might not have the discipline that, you know, they just end up distracted too much at home. So you've got really different, really different polarities there. So as a manager, you want to help people work out where they do their best work, but even when they do their best work, you know, some people like their routine is such whether they have kids maybe, but they just do amazing work. If they can start at 5am work till eight, take four hours off and then do three hours in the afternoon. And like, they'll do stellar work if they do that and be healthy and a good parent and all these other things, right? Other people, they'll do stellar work if they start at lunchtime and go straight through to 8pm. That's just how they work, right? They're night owls. So there's the where you work, there's the when you work, there's uh, our research showed that who you work with and what you work on is even more important, even more motivating. 
Like if you can give people, this is back to autonomy, give people a little more control than they thought they might have over what they work on and who they work with, you actually get an even greater sense of engagement. So we're coming back to autonomy a lot, but, but giving people more control over you know where they work, when they work, and what they work on and who they work with. These things are very intrinsically motivating. And at the same time, how can you as a manager kind of remove roadblocks and give people the tools they need to be to really feel like they can do their best work? Those are a couple of the, the really big things, we think. All right. Thank you. Well, tell me, David, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? No, I mean, I think this is an incredible time to make big changes in how we work individually and for organizations. I think it's a really interesting time because all our systems that were very frozen for, you know, forever have been kind of unfrozen. Everything's sort of been in flux. And as we start to open offices again and go back, you know, before we form bad habits again, I think it's a great time for companies and individuals to think about the habits they want to have, think about the culture they want to have, think about the kind of team they want to be part of all of this. So I I think it's a great time to be really intentional as we transition into 2022. Let's be really intentional about the kind of life we want to lead as an individual or the kind of culture we want to have as a company. And For me, it's really important to say this, you know, follow the science because the science is often different to a gut instinct. Follow the science and then experiment and then follow the data. Follow the science, experiment and follow the data are three really important things as we move forward. Don't just uh, follow gut instinct. All right. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote so that you find inspiring? Theodore Zeldin, a philosopher uh, at Oxford, one of my favorite authors, he often said, when will we make the same breakthroughs in the way we relate to each other as we've made in technology? So that's something that inspires me really often. Mm-hmm. And a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I really like the study by Dan Gilbert. Dan is a professor at Harvard. He wrote the book Stumbling on Happiness, which is about the way we, we mispredict what will make us happy in the future. You know, we think that a big car an hour in the suburbs will make us happier than a small apartment in the city. And it turns out the 10 hours a week of driving makes us miserable much more so than the space makes us happy. So anyway, he wrote this great book, Stumbling on Happiness. And he did this study a few years back looking at kind of what are the different activities that make people happy. And what he discovered was really surprising was that about half the time, people are literally not there mentally. They're, you know, the lights are on, but no one's home. They're like in a meeting, but they're mentally in a, in lunch tomorrow, or they're supposed to be working on a document, but their mind is off on something else altogether. So about half, uh, it was about 48% of our waking hours. We are literally not present in what we're doing it's such a fascinating finding and tells you why we need to kind of be reminded to have more of a growth mindset, and kind of experiment a lot more because we're just, you know, we're just not present a lot of the time. And a favorite book? I know the book, the book that changed my life a lot and sort of set me down the neuroscience path a lot was John Ratey's book. It's an old book now, but it was called A User's Guide to the Brain. And I read that and read that and read that and thumbed through that uh, for years and years and years. And it, it gave me like the first kind of really good dose of language about what was happening inside my head. And at some point I said, you know what, I really wish there was a version of this for, for doing work. And there wasn't. And I kind of ended up writing that book. That's my book, Your Brain at Work. And as, as self-serving this is, I just reread it and re-edited it. And 10 years later, after I, I kind of originally read it, I actually got a lot out of it. So that's my second most favorite book. It's my own book. It really helped me understand my brain writing it. And even 10 years later, there's very little I, I had to do to it to kind of improve it. So anything that sort of gives you language for what's going on moment to moment in your brain gives you an ability to be more mindful in a way because you're paying attention to internal experiences and states. So you're literally more full of your mind. Your attention is on your mental process. 
And these kinds of things end up having a similar effect as actual mindfulness training in that it reduces stress and gives you greater cognitive control and all these other things. So, so I'm a big fan of learning about your brain as a way of being more adaptive in life and more effective in your career or as a manager. Mm-hmm. And a favorite tool? I think my favorite tool is the hot tub, the jacuzzi. Mm-hmm. It's a communication tool. And I've probably had one consistently for the last 20 years and everywhere that I've lived, I've made sure of it. And what I find is you get this unusual window of time where you're super comfortable, super relaxed, where you can really have long, deeper conversations, usually with my partner or with a close friend. It's this non-obvious conversation tool for having really good quality downtime. And I find when I don't have a hot tub around, we just don't spend that kind of time really going deeper on things. Whereas with a hot tub, you do. So there you go, an unexpected tool. And is there a key nugget you share that people seem to quote back to you often? We tend to think about what's easiest to think about rather than what's right to think about. Mm-hmm. Something I said in your brain at work, and that's uh, a lot of people quote that. We, t- you know, we tend to think about whatever is easy to think about rather than what we actually should be focused on. And so you know, a lot of the intangible things don't get enough attention over things that are just more tangible by kind of accident. Okay. And... If folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? In a couple of places that I work, I do with organizations, uh, neuroleadership.com. So just neuro, N-E-U-R-O, leadership.com. Uh, personally, davidrock.net. My book, my most recent book is Your Brain at Work. You just look that up, you'll find it everywhere. And easy to find me through davidrock.net if you're interested in sort of all the different things I'm involved with. Okay. And do you have a, a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I think this is a great time to think about the next, you know, decade or so if yourself, you know, the, the decisions you make right now about your career will last you five to 10 years. So I think this is a good time to think deeply about what inspires you, what motivates you, what you want to, you know, really spend your time and your attention on. And a bit like the socks, do you want to spend your attention on something that annoys you or do you want to spend your attention on something that really inspires you? So I think it's a great time to be thoughtful about how you want to spend the next decade or so. All right, David, this has been a treat. Thank you. And I I wish you much luck and fun in your adventures. Thank you so much. Appreciate the opportunity. I really love what David had to say about the socks and our attention and our decision-making. And sometimes it's tempting to say, you know what? They're socks. You know, you're grown up. It's like, chill out about it. It's fine. Like, (laughs) and you know, it's true. They are socks and it's not something to really flip out about. Sure. But nonetheless, I found over and over again, when I spend a good bit of attention up front, setting something up forever, so I don't have to think about this little thing dozens or hundreds of times over, boy, the calm, the peace, the extra reserves available for great decision-making and tackling the challenges of the day really do increase. As silly as it sounds, having your socks nailed down lovelyly can make you more awesome at your job. So I love that. Good stuff from David. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the things to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP720. Hope to catch you next time. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. 
Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash beawesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.